So, we're coming to the ending of another day of our retreat together. We've uh, gone a bit over the halfway mark, and we're sort of on the downhill slope now. So, if you've been um, wondering about whether you should stay or go, you might as well just stay, because because <laughs> we're nearly there now, so... It should be a shame to, to miss the last, the last bit. Usually, I can't guarantee it, usually it improves, but uh, I'm not going to guarantee that. <laughs> it's been, uh, yeah, it's been challenging, hasn't it? <laughs> to spend this time together, it's, it's been, um, We've been very touched, I've been very touched, just to sense the sincerity, inquiry, the struggle that everyone uh, has participated in together in this space. There's something very precious about that. We're touching our human predicament together. Very uh, deep areas of our being both beautiful and painful areas of our being, of our experience. And uh, the more sort of irritated, petty aspects of our being, critical, self-critical, critical of others, the distracted, the dreamy, the hopeful, all the different kinds of states. I mean, it would be amazing, actually, if we could have a sort of a, somehow like a five-minute movie run of all the different states everyone we've been through. I think we'd be pretty kind of uh, amazed <laughs> at the content of consciousness. <clears throat> and probably it'd be pretty familiar for all of us. Uh, sometimes it feels like we're separate in our own experience, but actually there is a lot of, especially in our situation, when we get to speak to people to share a little bit in your journeys, there's a lot of familiar areas that surface, maybe slightly different individual expressions, but fundamentally similar kind of core experiences. And uh, what came to mind for me this evening um, is a, a theme that I've been contemplating this year, really, and, and that is seeing the path not necessarily so much emphasizing the path of enlightenment, uh, which seems such sometimes such a big thing, this notion of enlightenment. But for me, I've been contemplating and seeing it as a path of healing, a path of integration, which has been more in a way that I've been working um, yeah, more recently, healing aspects of the being, of one, my being, of my family, of not that uh, outwardly necessarily, but inwardly, the sense of touching the difficult areas with, uh, with compassion and having with that, sharing that process of healing with, with others in quite a, a close way. 
and the work that I've been doing at the Karuna Institute, which many of you are familiar with, which is based in, um, in, in meditative awareness practices, based in Buddhist framework, uh, but it's a way of bringing that practice into relationship through the medium of therapy, which is a word that can conjure up all sorts of <laughs> kind of notions in people. I'm not going to give a talk tonight about therapy, so you can relax. <laughs> but it, uh, it, is, it has been quite a, a part of my journey, and it does relate to the work we've been doing. Not so much that I'm kind of thinking... I need to say that everybody needs to do therapy. <laughs> I'm not really, it's not that so much, but it is this sense of some of the old habits that we experience, the karmic tendencies, when we make a space and we allow some spaciousness, often not, um, what, what we have to endure or be with or experience is, is just very deep patterns con- that have been conditioned in. Ultimately, they're, they're not self. Ultimately, they're not who we we are. But nevertheless, they feel they can have a very powerful impact into our life, uh, especially if they're, they're quite negative or destructive or tendencies which can undermine just our general sense of well-being. And I've been looking into this area, perhaps, in, in the spiritual life, just this general sense of well-being as a foundation of the path and how that can be actually quite um, diminished in our modern society. And maybe it was there more in the ancient society of the Buddha. I don't know. I, I really don't know. One gets the sense that when one reads um, about some of the stories of the early disciples, one gets the sense that maybe there was uh, perhaps more emotional, psychological integration, perhaps the culture was more integrated somehow, the extended family. And people had a perhaps maybe a a general positive sense of self from which they were operating. Certainly a lot of the early teachings, a lot of the initial teachings, not early, but a lot of the initial teachings that the Buddha gave were very much about developing positive karma which contributes to a sense of well-being. The, the, the teachings that we've been contemplating during this retreat of the, the subtleties of, of anatta, of no-self, of emptiness, uh, even the Four Noble Truths were sometimes given only at a point in someone's unfolding when there was felt to be a certain ripeness. They weren't automatically just handed out. So there was a sense of responding to where someone was at. And so uh, there's a story of Ananda Pindaka, the uh, famous layman at the time of the Buddha, that uh, gave a a very generous gift uh, of the Jetavana grove, which became a dwelling for the Buddha and his monks over a period of 25 vassas, or rainy seasons, which they established a monastery. And Ananda Pindaka brought this place by covering um, covering the land with, with gold coins so he could make this offering. He was very he was a very keen devotee of the Buddha, uh, very moved by the Buddha. 
And it wasn't until he was actually dying and Sariputta is at his deathbed that uh, Sariputta gave the, the gave him the teachings and the natag, both to talk to him about the subtler level of of um, non-self, of non-attachment, of um, of emptiness. And Sariputta and Anandapindika pleaded, you know, please don't leave these, please. Um, have these teachings, explore these teachings, make them more available for the, for the lay folk, for everyone. Please, you know, uh, you know, don't keep these teachings. And there was something about the, the, the teachings that often were given were very much about cultivating the positive karma, cultivating generosity, um, a heart of kindness, uh, renunciation, um, patience, equanimity, sila, the vehicle of, of virtue or integrity in one's life, getting one's life into shape, into order. Uh, there's a found the foundation that uh, leads to a general sense of feeling good about ourselves, and then from that base, investigating more into the subtle, subtle teachings. So usually, as uh, usually as Westerners, those from a modern culture that uh, want everything very quickly, including enlightenment or wisdom or compassion, want to get through, work through our stuff very quickly. When we meet these teachings, we we want to go to the top straight away. We like to know, you know, the, the deepest, the most profound aspects, the best, most expedient techniques. Going to search around for them, and that's 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 valid. I think that's valid, but I think where sometimes it can leave us is perhaps somewhere down the line, realizing that maybe we have some work to do at the sort of uh, the lower stories <laughs> of our being. And for me, when I first came to the teaching, I began to realize. Um, just meditating, I started to have to reflect on the results of my life and uh, just realizing that there were many, not sort of gross things, but things that I would be doing or involved in that weren't really that wholesome. Not in any extreme way, but just weren't really that great. And so I realized I had to sort of clean up my act a bit. I become more responsible, develop more integrity. And that's an ongoing process that doesn't just sort of, you don't do it once. And then it uh, finishes. It was like a, an ongoing process of integrating one's whole life into this path. And then sort of going further down the line, realizing perhaps even some of the ways that we can use the teachings uh, can sometimes be applied in, in a not very integrated or careful way. And so I, I have sometimes in my practice, I can land up with more questions than answers. I have quite a lot of questions about how we use the practice in the West, these subtle, these subtle teachings, um, just from reflecting on the results, which are, which are mixed. I think they're mostly very positive, but just reflecting on in myself and those that I've lived very closely with for a number of years. 
And uh, so I'd just like to touch on that tonight, because I feel that it's actually quite a delicate process how we apply some of these very profound teachings, say, on non-self and emptiness, to the sense of self, to the ego structure. I think that if, if there's a, if they're in our sort of um, ground base, if you like, if there isn't a very um, healthy or integrated ego structure, a basic sense of well-being, then sometimes, uh, or we find life or relationships very difficult, um, sometimes this teaching, we can come across this teaching of non-self, and it's like, oh, what a relief. Don't have to bother anyway. You can just sort of wipe it all out. It's all an illusion anyway. And uh, and perhaps that's not a conscious conscious way that we can apply the teachings, but certainly I feel that 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 can happen, perhaps unconsciously. And so that uh, we can use this teaching on non-attachment or non-self in a unconscious way, to in a confused way closing down perhaps immaturely our our, um, our feeling nature because of fear of contact with the world, because of fear of contact in relationship, because of fear of pain perhaps, because of the difficulty of pain. And I think if that happens, then somewhere along the line, there's the need to, to perhaps readdress the balance, which is what I've been contemplating this last year, because certainly I think that was one of my tendencies, starting this practice, not consciously. But the world was very, a very difficult place, not an easy place, and so I found it that, in a way, fitted uh, my fundamental um, psychology. I didn't feel a very, uh, perhaps, confident, didn't have a very, perhaps, integrated or full or confident sense of self. And I, I don't think that was, a, you know, it's not a huge problem, it's a problem enough, but then feeling that I could use those teachings to to just undermine any any ego structure that was there. And so it, was, it, it sort of sets up a bit of a battle zone. I think in the West, where we, we're coming, we have a culture, and um, these, are, these aren't sort of, I'm just pondering, I'm pondering this out loud, because I know um, many of you have been practicing for years too, so I'm just kind of pondering these ideas. In the West, we have a, a very, a culture of, uh, where there's been a huge emphasis on being an individual. And perhaps, uh, and perhaps within that individuation, within that egoism in a way, perhaps we sense deeply sense the distortion of it. It does feel a distortion somehow. We have sometimes taken it to such a degree that we've isolated ourselves. We don't feel connected to anything sometimes, to each other, to the earth. We don't feel, we're not sensitized. We've put so much emphasis. But nevertheless, that is our cultural inheritance. And so somehow I feel bringing this very profound teaching on from the East of the emptiness of self is perhaps one of the most radical aspects of the Buddha's teaching in its, in its, in its, the way that it impacts our, our, our inherent cultural view. And uh, I just have a sense that there needs to be some delicacy in that dance together, 
in the, in the way that that teaching is applied. Some care. I haven't got a, an ultimate answer about that at all, but I just feel that there's some care needed. So it's not just used, we don't just use it to wipe out, um, or to diminish, or to, you know, to sort of feel that, uh, you know, sort of just try and self-destruct the ego structure, which has its place. It's, it's a vehicle, if you like. It's what we negotiate the world with. And if it's a, a healthy structure, then or, you know, in a way, it makes it does make our life easier. In the same way, it's a healthy body makes life easier. It's not essential for Dharma practice. It's not essential to have a greatly integrated sense of self either. But it can be just helpful to have a, a base of well-being as a as a as a, as a supportive inner environment, psychological um, health, emotional balance. And I think in the way the practice in and of itself to, to a great degree does address that and integrate that and, and over time has a balancing effect. But I don't know, I don't, I don't have um, huge confidence that the practice of Vipassana does it all. For some people it does. I think perhaps there is a time and a place for bringing in other methods, other ways of supporting our journey. So this, 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 um, just talking in terms of the work we're doing here, this 10 days, this, this base, building a, in a way, positive base from which to work or address these more subtle aspects of the teachings. As in Char compared, it also said it's like building a pyramid. He said you go up from a large base. If you go up from too narrow a base, it's very fragile, prone to just falling quite, you know, radically and being a bit shattered. So a lot of our, say, our training, and a lot of the classical training within Buddhist schools puts a lot of attention to the base. Um, the whole of one's life. Things like developing generosity of heart in our relationship. Things like developing this sila or integrity. Things like uh, developing uh, karma yoga or selfless service in the world. Um, things like a certain responsibility to one's community, to one's family. Things like developing a sense of uh, respect for that which needs to be respected in life, uh, developing heart qualities of kindness, compassion, things like considered an important you know, foundation. Or perhaps more loosely defined as positive karma, force of positive karma. So that's generated and consciously cultivated in a lifetime when we experience the flow of the difficult. It's like we have a broader base in which to dissolve or to contain that which is painful, that which is suffering or that which is confusing 
It allows us, in a way, uh, more strength from which to um, be able to really receive the resultant calm of our own life, but also the life that we're connected with around us, family, community, globally. No doubt just as if we if we meditate we we naturally become more sensitive and open so we are going to we are going to feel it more we are going to receive we are going to be more we are going to receive more directly if we pack a karma in the worldly way or the ordinary way then we have such defense mechanisms that we can actually go through a life and become very insensitive not really feeling anything very much living from a particular view or bias or based in perhaps just fear of being open, fear of just really feeling the depth of uncertainty that life is, the depth of the painful that we're connected with. So naturally in the meditative process, especially in the Vipassana, which is criticized earlier, the heart of it is this letting go, this opening to how it is. Naturally we're going to, in a way, be receiving quite a lot of um, perhaps various kind of feelings and quite often quite difficult feelings, not, not the peaceful, not the calm, maybe even the feeling of it not being in control can't control. So if we have no space from which to receive that, then then we just feel swept away, we feel overwhelmed. So the building of the space during this this um, time, we've been stressing that, that uh, the Samatha kinds of meditation help to build that base. The moment-to-moment mindfulness, in a way, is the heart of that. And some people have been practicing metta, which is a is, is a, has a slightly different angle to it. The, the conscious generation of the positive energy of the heart, but also it's a samatha, the, the holding, the containing, the strengthening of the mind and heart as a, as a base, as something which we can, can use as a, as a strength of container. A certain attitude of prayerfulness can be very helpful when things get really too overwhelming or too difficult. We don't know what to do. We feel totally contracted into our diminished uh, and collapsed into diminished sense of self. We we feel there's no light. And sometimes it's it's a notion that perhaps we've lost in our culture, or has been. I mean, it's a very primitive in a way. If it's like going instinctual kind of level of our being. I mean, it comes up, if you've ever been in a situation, like when Kitty Saro and I were in Africa, um, I can't remember when, about 18 months ago, we were driving. One of the most tricky things in Africa is driving cars. It's, it's quite, uh, it, it can be quite scary. I mean, I know what driving, I've heard driving in Italy can be scary, but I don't think it can touch anything about South Africa. But, uh, the um, people overtake and also, I mean, it's just really chaotic. You, you just can't guarantee anyone's going to follow any particular rule. And you have these very 
slow trucks that just go really, really slowly along these narrow roads. And uh, you have, um, they call them uh, black taxis. You have these minibuses, which the African community uses taxis. They fill them up with hundreds of people and chickens and things hanging off the top. And then they just, they feel it's an emasculating experience to stay any longer than about three seconds behind a vehicle. And uh, so they, they overtake in the most precarious, precarious situations. And uh, I just have like a heart attack any time one of these taxis gets near. Anyway, one night we were driving, going along, um, and, and you get these mists, you have these storms that roll in in the summer, about once every two or three days, you know, they're like an almighty storm, and the heavens just open up, and it's been very, very hot, and it storms, and then the rain thunders down, and then after the rain, there's these mists, the reaction to the heat, the mists that rise up in, into the road, and, you, and, you know, and suddenly you can just drive into a mist, and you can't see anything, and on top of that, you know that you're in a bit of a precarious situation. Well, Kitty Sarah and I were behind one of these big trucks, and we were we got to the point where we became like one of these uh, taxi drivers because we both looked at each other, and it seemed safe. And we said um, we kind of like looked, and it was like, yeah, let's go for it. So Kitty Sarah pulled out, and he zoomed in past this truck, and we don't seem to be making any headway. And suddenly, I see these headlights coming up in front of us in the distance, and I think this is it. <laughs> This is the nearest I've ever come to thinking, this is it. And my body, like that, went to jelly. It was interesting, just instantly, like, boom. And Kitty Sarah just turned to me and said, pray. (laughs) 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 So you think your prayer life is gone. There's certain moments in in, uh, life and death when it's pretty present, I can tell you. So I I prayed, I really, and uh, somehow we made it. Uh, but interestingly enough, we made it, and uh, by an act of God, I think. And uh, we were talking for about 20 minutes about. I was saying, you know, I've never been in a car crash. You know, God, that was so crazy. We were just talking about it, and then about 20 minutes later, this car. We were coming up to the freeway, and slowing down to go onto the freeway, and this car zoomed off the freeway, and it didn't break, and it just kind of came right into our lane, and we had this crash. It was just so bizarre. I just it just felt like it was destined that we were going to have some kind of a... It wasn't serious, but it was enough to uh, munch up his car a bit and munch up our car and for us to get a bit of a scare. Anyhow, that's a, that's a side issue. That's uh, South Africa. But the, the prayer element... <laughs> Actually, it is relevant to South Africa because I use it a lot there. Because I'm dealing with um, quite uh, sometimes quite challenging states that come up in response being in an uncertain situation, an uncertain country. I don't understand the country very well. I can't read it that well. It's in a it's in a time of turbulence and transition. So I I can experience a lot of anxiety, bordering on fear, occasionally bordering on terror. <laughs> Sometimes out in the night when we, we stay on the land, land backs into a hundred miles of just wilderness area. It's very, very primeval. You just sort of walk out into the night, and it's it's like it gets one gets in touch with some really primeval places in one's being. It's quite amazing. But this this prayerful attitude can be if it 
it can be something one can actually consciously develop. And again, I think it's in our culture, it's been very abused, perhaps, for many people. Um, and so there's a, perhaps an instinctual um, tendency to, to be very cynical or to just shut that down. But interestingly enough, when the Buddha worked with the pre-existing Brahmanic culture of his time, he didn't just kind of throw out all the words and all the things. He actually integrated aspects of what was already there into his teaching. And the same with the, when, when the Buddhism went to other lands and it went to Tibet. It was only the great uh, Padmasambhava that was able to really integrate, begin to really shift Buddhism been there for quite a long time, but it was, it was actually being rejected because it wasn't really fitting the culture. It wasn't fitting the psyche of the people. And he, he actually understood that and managed to integrate, begin to integrate it. And, uh, and I feel it's a similar process here that like there's something delicate about bringing these teachings in that aren't inherent, some of them within our cultural context. And acknowledging what's already here, centuries of what's already been here within our psyches, even if we have a personal amnesia about it, <laughs> or reaction, still it's sometimes it's uh, built in more deeply than we realize. There's something about those two meeting um, and doing a dance together. And if we come in too quickly, in a rigid way, imposing systems and techniques and ideals and philosophies without perhaps taking all of that into context, I think it's, we can um, perhaps marginalize something that has, uh, you know, um, Buddhism that has so much potential, so much to say for where we happen to be at at this time um, in our evolution. But, so this, this sense of um, not only as we bring in and the meeting of these cultures, but as it meets our own psyche, how does it fit? So I think there's something about, I think this is why Kitty has this feeling of really being very spacious um, in our approach and, and um, wanting to perhaps be a little flexible and perhaps erring on the side of it being a bit wishy-washy or confusing or not clear enough somehow, or rather erring on that side and allowing something organically to, to grow out of the mixing of, of what the teaching is meeting within each of our psyches. So, uh, this, so this taking into account this sense of, of the prayerful, I think that, that does have a place in our psyche. There is something that perhaps instinctually, we have an instinctual sense of, of being connected, however diminished it's been, being connected to the greater whole the universal benevolence. And so sometimes in our practice, in the moments of our practice, when we feel perhaps we're really obstructed, when we can't see not-self and emptiness and we're just in bliss, when it's not, you know, when we're fearful, and sometimes this sense of just offering, offering that up into the benevolent universe, just allowing, just opening the heart, speaking into the silence from the silence of our heart. Perhaps even saying, I don't really know, I can't really do this. I, I, I'm just making that very conscious. It's like a conscious opening of the heart space. And then just being able to listen and receive from the universal silence. Even connecting if we have a sense of realized beings. 
I don't personally think because some of them are not in their bodies anymore that that energy is not available to us to call on for protection, for guidance. So this is like for me as a resource. It's a it's a uh, it's a positive aspect that we can bring into our heart space. It's a very profound aspect. The use of mantra. When we use mantra, and the mind is very scattered. The mind energy is all over the place. We have distracting thoughts. We can't get out of our mind. Sometimes turning that mental energy into a mantra or a prayer. At one point in my nun's life. About six years into it, I went through a very dark period. Everything kind of collapsed. There was no hope. I couldn't do any kind of practice of any sort or other. And interestingly enough, I found this very... A prayer came up from my childhood. It came from quite a deep place. And I never thought that would come. But it just kept coming and repeating itself. And I realized it was like my own inner wisdom was offering me a skillful means, was offering me some way of, of moving through that very dark and difficult space. And it was a prayer. I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't practice Vipassana, I couldn't practice Samatha, I couldn't practice Metta. <laughs> I could just about hang on in there, really. And this prayer was like very, very um, soothing. It was very soothing and it connected me with a very pure and supportive emotional space. And that was important, that came. And I thought, well, it was a Christian prayer. And I thought, oh God, I'm a Buddhist, I shouldn't, you know. <laughs> I mean, in a way, the, the Buddha doesn't have, it has more over the years an emotional connection, but, you know, at that point, it wasn't a very big emotional connection. He seemed very remote. I think that connection came more when I visited Budgaya and I had a real sense, again, to have a, a real sense incredible, infinite, compassionate heart, mind of the Buddha and what his journey was about. But it wasn't like a culturally, you know, ingrained thing. Uh, it was there for me a bit with a lot of confusion, but uh, essentially there was something there for me about the Christ that was a very, from a very deep place, went in at a very young age. If you go to an Asian country, they have a lot of that, if you like, that base there, that emotional... Um, connectedness and warmth because and devotion already in place because they have great faith for the Buddha. You know, it's their centuries. And so that helps to contain and support them a sense of faith through the difficult patches. So to a certain extent we have, we're talking to someone today, you know, like the difficulty of being involved with this at a point in time in our culture when it's not hugely integrated or supported, we have to make do, we have to build the raft from what we can, really, from what's around us. It might not all fit into a neat package. We have to take from where we can to support our journey. And uh, the Buddha very much said it's a raft, really. It's, it's all about creating a raft to get you across the sea of suffering. You draw from what, what you know, you make a raft from what's around you. So this process of um, letting go, letting go of self, delicate, and it's a paradox because on one level you can say we're cultivating positive karma, positive faith, perhaps positive well-being, sense of self. 
And that's one level of reality. And then this more subtle investigation into actually how the place of non-grasping, the place of really non-identification with any aspect of form as self, of thought as self, of feeling as self. And sometimes we can feel if we let go, we're going to land up in a diminished space. If I let go of what I know, then I'm just going to land up in a sort of nihilistic, dead kind of space. There's going to be nothing left. I'm going to be wiped out. So inevitably, in this process of letting go, we're going to meet fear. We're going to meet anxiety. Because we don't know what we're letting go into. We don't trust yet that anything that could be started talking about the bed maybe we don't trust that that bed's going to be there. And when fear comes, we can want to meet that with a lot of will, just want to kind of crush through it. But I feel it needs a lot of respect. So again, it's an energy that's not, not easy to work with. It needs, we need to just keep meeting it in little bits, meeting it. Fear's not something one can just necessarily crush through with will. I have to keep hearing it, receiving it, feeling the edge of it, and then coming back to a place that feels safe, feels strong, reconnecting with courage, and then touching that again. Because really fear, I mean, the sense of self is really about fear. I mean, it's very fragile. I mean, the ego structure ultimately is, is very fragile in the face of impermanence and death. So it's a fearful thing, fundamentally. So we're going to feel that. We're going to feel that anxiety. Of, of having self. But the dismantling of that is, I feel, is an enormously delicate process and needs a lot of respect. And perhaps the putting in place of this wholesome, um, supportive environment. Until we can begin to actually trust as we let go, rather than letting go into diminished sense of self, what we're actually allowing ourselves open to open to is, is a universal consciousness. So it's knowing in a way perhaps our deepest fear is not so much of death or impermanence, but our deepest fear is really knowing at our depth our own enlightenment and claiming that, being empowered with that, growing into that. the vastness of it, the beauty of it. Ken Wilber said a very interesting thing about that. So when we start to really sense that, then these tendencies, and the Buddha talked about the tanha we've been looking at, the craving of wanting to own it, or, or get it, or... So when actually when we really relax into what we really are, then we are it. We're all of it. And we're none of it either, so it's this paradox. We don't have to get it anymore. We can just be it. It's phenomenal. It's just like, phenomenal. But we do that little by little. I mean, for most of us, some beings, you that some beings, they just kind of crash straight in there and that's it. <laughs> and 
But uh, for most of us, that's not the journey. The journey is just little by little, just learning to relax, learning to trust, learning to trust initially just the space of just awareness, just trusting in perhaps a deeper place. We start to shift from trusting all the thoughts and views and ideas and beliefs about ourselves. We learn to listen to them and not place so much energy into that. And learning to just listen more deeply, listen more quietly, and we begin to sense that space of awareness. Learning to sense what is it when we just like trust in being with that. Our teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, said after all his years of practice and reading and doing this and doing that, he said ultimately it's come down for him to just trusting in awareness in the moment. And that can, that's very beautiful, but also it means that we have to negotiate the uncertain, the feeling of the uncertainty in that, perhaps. The ego uncertain sense of self, not enough. I need to hold, I need to grasp, I need to define, I need my boundaries. And that's true too. So ultimately what we fear and what we desire is the same thing. We fear and desire our loss of separation. And it's a curious paradox that we're working with on this path. There's many different kind of levels and paradoxes to it really. So at the end of this this day, maybe just uh, consider the good fortune that we will have to be able to just reflect in this way on our human predicament, that we have the time and the space and the energy and the resources to do that. And may we use this time wisely. Our time is in one level limited in this sphere. We don't have limitless time and energy within this form, within this situation. We have certain opportunities. And this is one of them, an opportunity, even though it's difficult, it's challenging, it's a very precious opportunity to develop this path. So at the end of the day, may we truly appreciate that. It's something really worth appreciating. And may we share any of our compassion any of our moments of kindness, may we share within our sphere of awareness our our family and our friends, our community in this globe, with a thought, may all beings be well, may their hearts be at ease. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.